We're in Acts chapter 22. If you need a Bible, raise your hand. We'll have some people passing them out for you, but you're going to want to follow along with this crazy story that Paul's been in. We're going to do a little bit of a recap to find out how we got there. Uh, Before that, let's pray and really set this time aside. Jesus, you're worthy of it all. We thank you that we get to put our minds on you and sing songs with lyrics that exalt your name and remind us of how great you are. There's just no one like you. And we've been able to take this time and set it aside to to hang out with you and to know you more and to spend time listening to the teaching of your word. And we submit to that. The authority of your word, Lord, we submit to you. This time is special. Thank you for this. Thank you for all these people who come out and enjoy just being together, singing songs together, being in the word together, fellowshipping together. We pray you'd pour your spirit out on us. We want to know you more, Lord. Have your way this morning. We pray it in Jesus' name. Amen. Paul knew what was going to happen. For years, or months, sorry, maybe years, the Lord had been speaking. Tribulations and trials await you, Paul. When you get to Jerusalem, it's going to get rough. And here they are. Initially, he goes, and there was some trouble that was stirred up by some Jews from Ephesus, which will come into play here in a little bit. But Paul gets to share the gospel. Remember, it was, this is the first time he's been able to do so to the nation at large. And he had been waiting to do it for 20 years, 20-some years. So you're thinking to yourself, what have you been waiting for 20 years? Just imagine that. Your heart just burning to do this. Jesus, in Acts chapter 22 and 18, Jesus made it really clear, I, Paul, I need you to leave immediately. Paul was getting ready to construct how he can share the gospel with the Jews Jesus says, you got to go. It's time to get out of here. They would have probably treated Paul much like Paul treated Stephen, and they would have done him in. But God knew he had all kinds of things for Paul to do, plans that he had set apart for his glory. And he says, you got to leave. 20 years transpire. And here we are where Paul got to then share the gospel to the nation of Israel which I must say is an incredible, well, it's an incredible display of God's faithfulness to his people, Israel, that time and time again, over years and years, the gospel was shared with the nation of Israel because he loves them. Because God loves them. And as he shares these things with them, crazy stuff happens. Notice they were listening to him all the way up until he says this one thing. Look at verse 22. They listened to him until this word. And they raised their voices and said, Away with such a fellow from the earth. He's not fit to live. They were done with him. They cried out. They tore off their clothes and threw dust into the air. The commander of the barracks, I'm sorry, the commander ordered him to be brought back to the barracks. He said that he should be examined under scourging so that he might know why they shouted so against him. Paul was speaking a language that likely the Commander didn't know. He was speaking Hebrew. And everything's going fine. They were listening to him. He saw a vision of the risen Savior. They didn't say anything about that. Jesus spoke to him. This is the Messiah that they've been waiting on. They didn't say anything. They listened to him patiently until this, this display of God's grace and mercy extending to people whom they thought they could never extend to. Remember Gentiles, many of us in here, were created 
to be fuel for the fires of hell. That was in a lot of ways in, in their mindset at the time. And so there's just no way a Gentile can be saved. And so then they find out that this Messiah that Paul supposedly saw says, I'm going to send you to the Gentiles. They lost their ever-loving mind. They couldn't handle it. I mean, it literally their mind blew. There's no way we're going to kill this man. How dare he say that? Okay, so they do this because God's grace. Now, uh, as we, we read through these things, we look at what was happening. I want to pause and just help. I want to uh, like understand the craziness and the wild nature of God's grace. Uh, Titus chapter 2, verse 11. Um, For the grace of God that brings salvation has appeared to all men. John 3, 16, if you've ever heard of it. For God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten son. And it says the who, whoever believes in him will have everlasting life. It's like, man, this is good stuff. He won't perish. Like, this is good news. But it's the grace of God that is so incredible. It's like, we know this. We know certain facts. Like, I know that I am a sinner. And I was born in sin. And my life has been rebellion against God up until the point of salvation. And then I've struggled since. I know that because of my sin, I will experience separation eternally from God in a place called hell. That's where I get to go apart from the the love and kindness and grace and mercy of God. Okay, so Jesus then, he came and offered himself as a sacrifice on behalf of me so that he paid for my rebellion, my sin, my shame, all my iniquity went on him on the cross and I have been forgiven. Like these are things I know, right? You guys know, you're good theologians. This is the gospel. Like I get it, I see that. I know that I've been saved by grace through faith and that now God sees me righteous. You guys are driving in and it's funny watching you walk in. I don't know if it was as bad this service, but when you walk in along the sidewalk, the wind blows and there's this, we're calling it like the breath of Satan and it brings all the snow and it just pulls it around and, and everybody walks in having been dusted with this ice cold snow. And it's just, it's funny to watch everybody respond to it. Uh, but then you're looking out here at the snow and it's like, oh, I'm so ready for the spring. But guys, like it's this reminder, whenever you're driving, just remember, though our sins were like scarlet, what's he done? He's washed us as white as snow. That's the gospel. Like every time you see the snow, just think, thank you, Jesus. That is what I am in your sight. It's an incredible thing. But we know these facts. We see it. I'm pure before him. How about that? But then it's like, but then I don't get it. Like I just don't understand why he would love me like that. And how on a simple basis of belief, I'm forgiven of all those things? Hidden in Christ, that's the place I want to be, in him. So we know all these things. The Jews couldn't comprehend. It was old wine, and, but God's doing a new work. And so the old wineskin of the Old Testament couldn't contain the new work of the Holy Spirit. There needed to be a new covenant built with better promises. Jesus, once and for all, had gone in. All these things would have been known and explained to them. But then the thought that you just could, you could be a Gentile and be saved, there's no way. Surely not. God's grace is offensive. It comes against us in many ways. How can this possibly be? But it's whosoever. Paul's sharing this message with them, and they couldn't handle it. So, so offensive was the thought that Gentiles could be saved. They literally wanted to kill him. So don't let that get lost on you, because that's pretty serious stuff. And it also leads to another little segue 
And we're going to roll through this. We'll take some time up front. We'll kind of move pretty quickly towards the end. But what an odd response this is. You would look at this response. Jesus said, go to the Gentiles and love them, right? Like, let's think about all that comes along with that. Love them. Show them the hope and truth of the gospel that God loves them and has saved them. If they would, yeah, but just repent and turn to him, confessing Jesus as the Lord and believing in their heart that God raised him from the dead, you'll be saved. That nefarious message of hope, you know, it's like, man, away with such a fellow, kill him. What you would say, like, that is a demonic response and is a window into this spiritual battle that is real and we're watching it right now unfold before our very eyes. Why do people respond this way to the gospel? Why does the world respond so vehemently with hatred against truth and light? It's wild. And here's why it is. It's demonic. It's crazy. For you to believe that there's just one man and and there's just a woman, that there's just nothing in between. It's as simple as that. It's how God made it. And you are like the craziest person alive if you believe such a thing. It's crazy. It's almost demonic, right? It's crazy stuff. Our biblical sexual ethic that we hold fast to as believers, like, what on earth, man? It's just, it's bizarre. It's like, this is weird. We have a Voice of the Martyrs calendar in our workroom. And I was reading it at some point in time <laughs> this month. And there's a picture of a family. I think they're from India or somewhere like that. A mom and a dad. And right in the middle is their daughter. And she's, you know, eight years old or so. And the story behind it is they started following Christ and the village that they live in no longer allows them access to the clean water because they're followers of Jesus. And it's like, what a bizarre way to treat a human being because they're following Christ. Like what, that doesn't, like those things don't make sense. It's demonic. There's something behind it that we don't see that's like, what is going on? We have to remember it. So I want to just dive into that just for a moment. Go to Ephesians chapter 6 in your Bibles. And as we look at this, it's just going to be just the ver- verse 12. I just want to dissect some words and open up your eyes to it. There's only so much we know about it, and I'm not going to step beyond it. You know, I want to, here's what we know about the spiritual realm. Anything, when I start traveling in unknown territory, it gets weird. I would encourage you not to. Here, we have what Scripture teaches us. Stay right there. Don't go left or right. I don't think there's a need to, personally. But these rioting crowds want to kill Paul because he has a message of hope and salvation. Like, this is weird. Well, it's also demonic. There's a spiritual war that we are engaging in. This group that instigated all this was a group of Jews from, sorry, from Asia. Asia contained Ephesus. It was a large part of it. It's very likely that there were Jews from Ephesus that would have caused this whole riot to begin. This riot is going to cause Paul to become, and he's going to be in custody under Roman authority. And then he's eventually going to go stand trial before Felix. He's going to appeal. We'll talk about his civitas in a moment. But he's going to appeal to Caesar. Then they're going to travel all the way to Rome. And while he's in Rome in prison, you know what he's going to write? He's going to write the book of Ephesians. He's going to encourage us. We, we get to reap the, the reward of it. We get to hang out in it for a moment. But this book is written because a bunch of Jews from Ephesus started a riot. And now we have this, which I think is just cool, how God uses things, just a little snapshot. God uses the crazy stuff of this world, man, for his glory. Beauty from ashes. What they mean for harm, he means for good. 
that's the kind of God you serve. Put your faith in him. He's so good. Ephesians chapter 6, 12, it says, We do not wrestle against flesh and blood, but against principalities, against powers, against rulers of the darkness of this age, against spiritual hosts of wickedness in the heavenly places. I just want to break some of this down, open your eyes up to the realities of it. You guys do with it what you want. This word wrestle is a normal word for wrestle. It's a contest between two in which each endeavors to throw the other and is decided, or you win, when the victor is able to take his opponent and hold him down with his hands upon his neck. So this is a violent thing. There's nothing pretty about this warfare that we are engaged in. Our wrestle, it is a violent thing. And for us to be naive to the reality of what's happening here, there's a particular understanding we need to have of this. I don't want to be just some... I don't want to be childlike in the sense where I'm just naive and, and innocent to the realities of the evil and, and the diabolical schemes that are around us. As parents, we try to shield our kids from overexposure or exposure too early of evil in our world, becoming harder and harder as things become more blatant and insane. But I want to mitigate the exposure of my kid of evil to my children before they're being raised up and you prepare them to uh, engage with it. You prepare them to endure against it. Um, but a kid oftentimes is totally oblivious to the evils that are around him. And if they are, praise the Lord, by the way, that you as a parent, a father, a mother, a grandparent, so on, you're able to protect them from that. That's really healthy and really good. But I don't want that kind of naivety when it comes to this. You need to be very aware of the things you're wrestling with and you need to have your eyes wide open going into it that this is serious. A kid's in a crowd just having a blast, but you guys know what's going on, and so you keep them close to you. They're oblivious to it. It's dangerous to be oblivious. It's dangerous to not know what's going on. So I encourage you guys, take a look at this. Have your eyes open to the things around us. And nothing else, this stuff can make us pray differently, more fervently, you know? And that's what Ephesians will end up with, man. Above all, man, pray, pray. And have faith. Okay, so hand to the neck of a person, like that's violent, just so you know. And then it says principalities, it's the word arche, it speaks of angels or demons that hold dominions that are entrusted to them, but it's also in an ordered way. So what do we learn from this idea of principalities? That the people, the, the entity, whatever this is, these angels, that it is organized. This is organized resistance, so you know. I don't know what you think about it or how you frame your theology on the spiritual realm. Here's a really good place to start. Don't go further than Scripture. It's an organized resistance. There's a great movie out there called Nefarious. If you haven't seen it, I would encourage it personally. It's intense. Just be aware of it. But it's got some really interesting stuff in there. Take it for what it's worth. You know what I'm saying? But it's so, I've watched it. It's so good. It really stirred up my mind and like, oh, Lord, like I need to pray more. <laughs> but it's real. But in it, there's a moment where the guy who is demon-possessed is, is like scoffing at this atheistic lawyer guy or psychiatrist. And he's like, he says, we are, we're the most organized, patient entities you'll ever meet, you know, and just like, they're just laughing at him. <clears throat> now, nothing compares to the king of kings. You all know that, but they're demons, they're deceived. But there's some truth to it. There's just a lot of these interesting truth that's in there. Like, these are organized things. It's not like this is haphazard. They've been deceiving and destroying for thousands and thousands of years. They're good at it. I just want to be aware of it. Hey, listen. We have a king, and we're going to get to that, so nobody start worrying, okay? But it is organized, eyes wide open. This is what you're up against, just so you know. Then we see powers, right? Principalities and powers. Those are in authority to rule who have jurisdiction to execute certain things. 
This is the power to enforce. And so these particular things have a power to enforce. Don't know what all it means or where it goes, but they are, this is a strong and powerful organized resistance. Has nothing on the King of Kings. I just want to make that clear. But I also want you to know, like, it is real. Like, we're watching in Acts a strong, powerful, organized resistance against the gospel going out. We just want to be aware of it. Maybe that's the best thing I can say is, hey, just wake up to the reality. This is legitimate. The next thing is rulers of the darkness of this age. This word rulers, only time it's used in Scripture, it's this compound word, cosmocrator, something like that. That's how I say it. But if you break the words up, it gives us an understanding of what this word is. I'll briefly explain this. Cosmos is like the cosmos, right? That's where we get the idea from. And it means like a harmonious arrangement or an order. It can also mean, and I'm going to try to... to make this clear, it can mean the whole circle or, or all of the earthly goods. All right, so just imagine all of the best that the world can offer you, the endowments, the riches, the advantages, the pleasures of the world, which we know to be hollow and empty, right? You guys know that. The world offers us nothing. It's an empty well. You draw from it, you just get a bunch of muck. You can't do anything with it. It just destroys you. That's what the world has to offer. You guys know that. And yet we still see that even though it's hollow, frail, and fleeting, it still stirs up desire within me, wrestling against the flesh. And so the world has these things, whether it's finances or relationships or ease from suffering, whatever it might be, the world has certain ways of making me, it just stirs up desire. Like, what is this? Well, it's this cosmo crater. It's this battle we face as believers fighting against the flesh and the powers of the enemy, my eyes, my desire. These things seduce us from God, can, and are obstacles to the cross of Christ. This idea of crater is power. It's power to own and to distribute. So the other word for power was power to enforce. They have jurisdiction. Then there's power to own and to distribute, which is another aspect of this. Luke 4, 5, and 6, Jesus is in the wilderness. The devil comes to him and takes him on a high mountain. Showed him all the kingdoms of the world in a moment of time. And the devil said, all of this authority I will give you and their glory. For this has been delivered to me and I give it to whomever I wish. Jesus did not object and say, nah, dude, you can't do that. Don't you know? He said, I, I will worship no one else. Right? He, he quotes scripture to him. But this is like an, a literal example of the power to own and distribute that the enemy has. Don't know the ins and the outs of it. At the end of the day, the king of kings owns everything. You guys know that. But because of rebellion and because of being broken away, there's a particular dominion that the enemy has over this world. There's coming a time, guys, you know this, when Jesus is coming back and he's going to take control of it all. We know the end of the story. Until that day, though, we've got work to do. If I could sum it up like this, the power is real. Real. It is real. There is power there, demonic power. We've gone through this before. It's rulers, cosmo creatures of, of darkness of this age. And that darkness is this, the ignorance that respects divine and human duties the, and the accompanying ungodliness and immorality that comes with being ignorant of what God has. What the devil wants to do, what the enemy tries to do is to blind you from what it is that God would have. Keep you in darkness. That's why we spend time in the word of God because that, the word of God is a, Lamp to my feet and a light to my path, right? Psalm 119, 105. His word is a lamp to my feet and a light to my path. When I'm hanging out in here, darkness is dispelled. 
When I spend time with the King of Kings, Jesus Christ, darkness is dispelled. I see things clearly. Hey, guess what? Sometimes I see my own heart clearly. That's a bummer sometimes. But I also can see truth clearly. And through the lens of, of being filled with the Spirit, knowing God and, and having that and having Scripture, I see the world clearly. And that's why it looks insane. <laughs> right? I mean, we're looking at it like trying to just understand, Lord, you've set things up in such a beautiful way. Your wisdom is seen, the glory of creation. And yet, what is this world doing? They want to be gods, man. But no, he's the king. i got to bend my knee to him. And so we see things clearly. I'd like, like to think, right? Not that we are anything special, man. We just, we know the truth. And man, we've been set free. And so like, well, let's do something about it. The darkness of, the, of this age, spiritual hosts of wickedness in the heavenly places. That kind of makes sense. The gospel is offensive. We see it here. All that to be said, there's a spiritual battle going on. We can go back to Acts and we're going to kind of, not really speed run, but kind of speed run. Okay. When we get to this spot, we see this very strange response, a, a almost demonic response to the fact that the gospel's being shared and that Jesus wants to go and save people who are far off. And they're wanting to kill him. The commander hears all of this commotion happen. Everything was peaceful and chill for a moment. Paul says something, and now everybody is screaming and losing their minds and throwing dust and taking their clothes off, and it's getting crazy. Now, it's not like they were naked, all right? They're taking their tunics off, and they're just, remember they, they took off their clothes, and they laid at the feet of Saul so that they could kill him? Guess what they're getting ready to do? It's getting crazy. Now, again, the commander is like just listening. And then all of a sudden, everybody starts going nuts. The commander ordered him to be brought back to the barracks. Remember, they're right by the fortress. Antonio, you can throw that picture up if you want to. The one, of, you know, you guys have seen it before, but there's a picture of the fortress. Uh, they brought him back to that barracks and said that he should be examined under scourging so that he might know what is going on. Oh, okay. The commander could have thought, oh, Paul, you're trying to stir up so that you can get out of here. You're trying to raise a rebellion. Remember, he thought he was this crazy assassin guy. Paul's like, no, man, I'm not that. What's really going on? Did Paul lie to him? Would Paul have believed him? I have no idea. Or would Claudius lie? I have no idea. But this was a serious situation on his hands. One, a situation where he was going to lose his job potentially. Just so you guys know, there, there's like serious gravity to what's happening right now. That's what I'm trying to articulate. <clears throat> so they shouted and, they, and they're going to examine him. That word examine means what you think, investigate. But their means of investigation was a little bit different than what ours are today. If I'm going to investigate or examine what happened in a situation with my kids, I'll, I will just talk to them. But he's going to be examined under scourging. So pop that next picture up there. And, and we're going to talk about why Paul wanted to get out of this. Okay? <laughs> you, you need to look no further than that right there. Okay. So they bound him with thongs or with like chains, leather straps. And they were going to, they were going to, would have bound his hands. And they were going to lay him over a post on the ground. So you're laid out like that, exposing your back and then your, your hamstrings. And your calves, they're wrapping it around his wrists. And Paul's like, is it lawful for you to scourge a man who's a Roman and uncondemned? And that stopped everything. Now listen, Paul has, all, he's been scourged before. In Philippi, he got whooped pretty good. And you got to ask, why didn't he say anything then? Here he's using what's called his civitas, his Roman citizenship. And he's using it for his advantage, praise God. And listen, I get it, Paul. I'd use it too. 
But like, why didn't he do it in Philippi? And perhaps he had never been scourged. I don't know. He's like, once is enough. Now he had been beaten several times. Don't know how many times he was scourged, but this is gnarly stuff, right? I mean, this is literally terrible. They would lay you over. And I also have to point out this because I think it's fascinating that this very spot, there's perhaps two locations where Jesus was tried before Pilate. One could have been at the Fortress Antonia. There's a pavement there where he would have been tried. There might've been one other spot from what I've read. But Jesus would have been right there and laid over the same thing and scourged the same exact way of Paul. And the, the thing, when I heard that, I was thinking that there is no, there is no place you can go, and we've mentioned before, where Jesus hasn't been. Like he's our forerunner. He's been there and he knows. He just knows your struggles. He knows your fights. He's been there. And for Paul to have known such a thing, this is what would have happened. This is in Matthew chapter 27, verse 26, is when Jesus was scourged. He uses a different word. He used, they use a, a Latin equivalent, like the flagella or whatever. Same thing here. This is the Greek word mastix. It comes from a word that means to chew and to devour. Isn't that awful? Calves, hamstrings, back. I'm a Roman citizen. <laughs> you can't do that to me. I'm not going through this again, you know? Is it law? Now, if you claimed you were a Roman citizen and you weren't, you were going to die. Like there was a death penalty right there. So you didn't say it. They oftentimes would carry it around. They have a wooden thing that had a, like a plaque on it that said, I'm a Roman citizen. Some might have papers that would say that. They could look it up and they would hold you. They would detain you in prison until they found out, are you a Roman citizen or not? If you're not, it's over for you. It was a serious thing. I don't know how else to articulate it. When the centurion heard that, he went and told the commander. So the commander passed him off. Hey, guys, take care of this. Scourge him. Let's get some answers here. I'm tired of, tired of this whole thing. I'm getting ready to lose my job. The centurion heard. He went and told the commander. That's Claudius Lysias, the camp prefect. And he says, hey, you better take care of what you do. This man's a Roman. The commander then came and said, tell me, are you a Roman? He said, yep. Commander said, with a large sum of money, I obtained citizenship. And Paul said, hey, buddy, listen here, I was born that way. Paul's citizenship, there's words to it. I don't remember them right now. His would have been like the best citizenship. You were born that way. You were born a Roman citizen. Claudius Lysias obtained it likely through giving bribes. Apparently Claudius, was a, he was an emperor. His wife was notorious for saying, hey, I'll get my husband to give you citizenship if you give me like a million dollars. And so then a person could give money to his wife and then she would, Claudius would then give that. So the thought is, as I was researching, that this guy's name was Lysias and when he became a Roman citizen, he took Claudius's name because Claudius was the emperor at the time that gave him the citizenship and his name was Claudius Lysias. It's only just a thought. But that's how he would have done it. And it's a real thing. It would have been what was going on uh, there at a certain time. But when we read through this, I, I must remind you, remember there's a spiritual war going on, right? There's the stuff behind the scenes that we can't see and we can't tell. Are you a Roman citizen? And the answer is, I sure am. <laughs> yes, I am a Roman citizen. He uses his civitas. It was a God-given thing that God had prepared him in a very unique way. And I wanna share this with you. This is a book called The Good Citizen written by a guy named Josh Hirschberger, who's become a good friend of mine. But this is a, the book is a four-step guide to Christ-centered citizenship. It's really good. I would encourage you guys to check it out. But he has a section in here over this thing, and, he, and it's contextualized for, like, Roman citizenship and, you know, the law. And so it's kind of fun. Just a couple things. The Apostle Paul is uniquely, is a unique case study in the citizenship because unlike other the disciples, he possessed a unique credential <clears throat> that put 
he, he put to good use. Civitas, or Roman citizenship. Civitas was a highly prized privilege in the ancient Roman world. Civitas granted an individual the right to sue at law, the right to stand trial, the right to appeal to Caesar, and a prohibition, praise be to God, on torture and scourging, and they couldn't be put to death without a trial. If you weren't a Roman, like there were two different classes. If you weren't a Roman, all that went out the window. But if you were a Roman, you had rights like this. How incredible is that? I would want to be a Roman. I'd pay some money to not be scourged. He says, we take such rights for granted these days, but legally recognized protections and a, civil and a civilization powerful enough and advanced enough to administer and enforce them were very rare in the ancient world. These rights that Paul had, I'll stop there for now. These rights that Paul had, he used it. And this is gonna prolong his ministry. Paul's using his civitas for the glory of God. There's a point of application, you could say. It's important, though, to keep in mind that Jesus had this particular civitas as well. Okay, that was the wrong way to say it. Jesus had a civitas, but it was not Roman. He was not a Roman citizen. But Jesus had a citizenship that was way better than a Roman citizenship. Consider that for a second, because Jesus said there in the garden when he was getting ready to be taken, oh, no, remember Peter cut a dude's ear off and all that? He's like, don't you guys know that I could summon 12 legions of angels and they'll come here and protect me? He had a power so much greater than that of Rome, obviously. Interestingly enough, Jesus laid those rights aside. Now, I personally am a pretty patriotic American, very thankful of the heritage and foundation that we have, the First Amendment. Praise the Lord for that. I can get up here and say what I want. Isn't that cool? Praise the Lord. I'm thankful for the Second Amendment. I gotta be honest, I used that amendment the other day. <laughs> Okay, and got to enjoy it. Had a blast, literally, you know. And so I'm thankful for that, right? I love it, and I'm thankful for what God has given us and the sweetness of this country, man. I praise the Lord for it. But check it out. We are citizens of something even greater than America, and that's the, the kingdom of God. And there are undoubtedly times, this is like just consider it, that there are ways in which I have to lay aside my rights as an American because I'm a follower of Christ. Don't know when those situations come. Just know that there is a higher power. <laughs> it's Jesus. And he, although could have used these rights, he didn't for the sake of the gospel. And he took it for us. Jesus could have said, I don't want to be scourged. But he took it for us so that we don't have to. He could have said, Father, sin. He didn't do any of that. Think, I mean, you can use it, though. Paul uses it. Jesus did it. You know what I'm saying? Like, man, just as the Lord leads, you need a relationship with the Lord. This particular instrument of death would have been awful. When Paul answers this, you'll notice in verse 29, immediately those who were about to examine him withdrew. There'd be two guys doing it. So there'd be one guy would whip, and then the other guy would do it. And then the next guy, right? And so on and so forth. Until the person's life was so miserable, they're like, ah, fine, I'll tell you. What do you want to hear? I'll tell it to you. Whatever you say. Two people, but you'll notice they immediately stepped back because if you bound a Roman, you could lose your job. If you scourged a Roman, you lose your life, according to law at least. And so you can see these two just normal soldiers who were commanded by the centurion. The centurion was commanded by Claudius Lysias. They're like, they immediately withdrew from him. And the commander was also afraid. This is a battle-hardened crazy dude who's in charge of a thousand people who had seen wars and is a wild man, and he's afraid now for his life because he knows what has happened. 
he found out, he was afraid when he found out he was Roman because he had put him in, he bound him. The next day, because he wanted to find out what was going on, uh, he was, he, why he was accused by the Jews, he released Paul from his bonds and commanded the chief priests and all their council to appear and brought Paul down and set him before him. This is the next day. He's got a little bit of a smaller audience now, but it's just the Sanhedrin and any maybe other accompanying people who were just there in the public. All that crowd had died down and gone to sleep that night. They woke up the next morning. They sent the council, the high priest, and so on. They now have gathered together. And now Paul gets to address this very specific group of people here in chapter 23. Paul, looking earnestly. What do you think that means, you guys? Consider this for a second. Jesus witnessed before the nation of Israel. Stephen witnessed before the nation of Israel. Peter witnessed before the nation of Israel, like the, the governing body. And then we fast forward, here's Paul witnessing, like God is so faithful. I know I've already said that, but he's just faithful to reach out and try to reach his people. He looked earnestly at the council, men and brethren, I have lived in good conscience before God unto this very day. What does that mean? That before God, he could say, I have tried and done the best I can to serve God. I was misdirected initially because I was kind of, you know, hurting Jesus, but I was trying to do what was right. He's, I can stand before the people and say, I'm doing what I can. Your heart is pure in the matter. Sweet place to be. He says, the righteous are as bold as a lion. He just knew, guys, I, I can stand before you and say, I'm innocent. I've done everything I can to follow after God. Well, notice what happens in verse 2. The high priest Ananias commanded those who stood by him to strike him on the mouth. I want you to just note, okay, those who, that's plural, not he commanded one guy who stood next to him to punch him in the face. He commanded those who stood by him to punch him in the face, okay? Now, Paul's already probably bleeding from having been beaten, you know, the day before, and he's all crusty now with blood or whatever. And here he is, and if you've ever been punched in the face, it is one of those things where it hurts, right? It just hurts. <laughs> and like something comes inside of you where you then want to do what? You want to come back at him. Well, Paul's going to come back at him with his words. Check this out. Paul said to him, God will strike you, you whitewashed wall. You sit to judge me according to the law. And do you command me to be struck contrary to the law? Apparently, Paul was right. There's no reason why he should have been struck. He didn't do anything wrong. And so Paul comes against him and says some pretty serious stuff. God's going to strike you, you know. The whitewashed wall, that was just a, what they would do is they would whitewash tombs. Jesus used that, you whitewashed tomb. They would whitewash walls where areas that were unclean. So that Jews, when they were traveling in, they wouldn't touch it because then they would be unclean. And so certain places you just couldn't go because of uncleanness, they would wash them white. He says, you guys are just disgusting. <laughs> he lets them have it. Then they said, hey, do you revile God's high priest? Because the high priest is the one who said it. Paul said, I didn't know it was the high priest. My brothers, I'm sorry. Hey, because it's written, you shall not speak evil of your ruler, right? The rule of your people. Interestingly enough, why did Paul not know, or how did Paul not know that the high priest had said it? The high priest of Israel was an extremely high profile position, right? <laughs> A couple thoughts. Uh, do take note. Okay, it's possible Paul's eyesight was really bad. That's the first thing. Pretty simple. But Paul's eyesight was bad. And there's a crowd out in front of him, and over there's the high priest, and you just, you hear from the crowd, like, punch the dude, you know, whatever. And so they pop him in the mouth, and he's, God strike you, you know, how dare you punch me. Uh, there's a crowd there. So his eyesight's potentially bad. There's a decent reason for thinking that. And this is 20 years later. Was it the high priest when Paul was doing his thing there in Jerusalem? That was Annas. That was a high priest who dealt with Jesus. 
Well, Annas had since been deposed of his position, and Ananias took position around 47, I think, A.D. And he was the high priest until about 59 A.D. Around this time, in fact, it's just a few years later that Ananias is going to be replaced. In 66 A.D., Ananias was assassinated by the Sakari. Do you guys remember we talked about the Sakari, those crazy assassin dudes who carried little bitty daggers? Ananias would be assassinated by them in 66. Ananias was a bum. He was like almost like a traitor to Rome, or sorry, to the Jews, and he was so compliant with what Rome wanted. That's why he was in office for so long, but the Jews are like, enough of you, and they, they give it to him. Why didn't Paul know? It's just a crazy scene. Anyway, I don't, th- I, all that, I don't think he's lying. I just, it is possible to have a big crowd and not know. The guys would have been dressed a certain way, but if you can't see them, you can't know. Then we see Paul using some little bit of wisdom here. He perceived that one part were Sadducees, the other were Pharisees, two opposing theological camps. He cried out to the council, hey, men and brethren, I'm a Pharisee. I'm the son of a Pharisee. Concerning the hope of the resurrection, I am being judged. Resurrection of the dead, I'm being judged. When he said this, guess what? A dissension arose. That's kind of what he was hoping for. Between the Pharisees and the Sadducees, and the assembly was divided. The Sadducees say there's no resurrection, no angel or spirit, but the Pharisees confess both. Then there arose a loud outcry. Again, guys, dissensions, outcries, people screaming, yelling, taking their clothes off, throwing dust in the air. These are all things that are not good for a commander who's over that particular region, okay? So just know, Claudius is watching again. Once again, this guy, Paul, is the center of riots. Right, And so they're saying all these things. An outcry arises. The scribes of the Pharisees' party arose and protested, saying, we find no evil in this man. In fact, we kind of like him, they said. But if a spirit or an angel has spoken, let us not fight against God. Hey, who, who, who said that 20 years earlier? Gamaliel said that. That was his counsel there when Peter and Paul, sorry, when Peter and John were being whooped up on. He said, man, if this is God, you're fighting against him. Just leave him alone. That counsel rang true 20 years later. And there arose, guess what, another great dissension. The commander, fearing lest Paul might be pulled to pieces by them, he, know, know he's a, he knows he's a Roman citizen, and now Claudius Lysias has a responsibility to guard and protect Paul. He pulls him back, right? The, the, he commanded the soldiers to go down and take him by force from among the barracks and bring him back. There were 60 stairs that led up to the fortress Antonia. And so they, they, were, they were, again, watching from the top, and they go down there. It's a show of force, of course, you guys know. They go down there and grab him. Being aware of this and what's going on is really astounding. The, the Sadducees, just really fast, and then we'll wrap this all up. The Sadducees, they would probably be the equivalent to like a, a progressive liberal theology of our day. They didn't believe in the rest of the Bible. They only really understood the first five books to be from God. The Psalms, the prophets, And the rest of the books, they didn't see it as divine. They didn't believe in an afterlife. They didn't believe in a resurrection. They didn't believe in angels or spirits. It it allowed them license to rule. It it took away anything out there that would have been over them to a certain degree. The Sadducees were primarily made up the Levitical and the priesthood that was there. And so they were living a life, let's say, that was more (laughs) loosey-goosey in terms of just following after the Lord a little bit more compliant to the things of the world than what a Jew felt comfortable with. And so a vacuum was created in the spiritual spiritual nature of Israel. And what filled that vacuum then, if I could say it like this, this is a super fast thing, are the Pharisees. 
who were like, if you're not going to do your guys' job and lead the nation of Israel in holiness under the Lord, then we're going to do that, and we're going to do it by setting up laws to protect us from breaking the other laws. So Pharisees were just super strict to keep people from breaking the law. Initially started out as kind of a good thing, but then it became all about that, and it lost the, they lost the point. And so now there, there's these two opposing camps. Jesus had interaction with the Pharisees, and he let them have it in a very unusual way where he actually debated with them through Scripture to show that they were just straight up wrong. It was, it's a really interesting section. It was where they offered this really realistic thing where a woman had a husband and he died, and then her brother married her, and then six other brothers married her, all of them dying and no one thinking, maybe I shouldn't marry this woman, right, the whole thing. And then in heaven, he says, in heaven, whose husband is going to have her? And Jesus is like, you guys are insane. You're not given in marriage in heaven, you know? But he goes on to rebuke them and say, man, have you guys even read? He uses the, the first five books of the Bible, he uses the Torah, where God is, he's the God of uh, Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. And Jesus says, he's not the God of the dead, he's the God of the living. And he just rebukes him right there and then. And so this fight goes, Paul uh, being, you know, gentle as a dove, wise as a serpent, just recognizes they're punching me in the mouth already. And all I've said is one, two, three, four, five, six, seven, eight, nine, ten words. And they're already swinging at me. Hey, Pharisees, I'm on your team. You know? <laughs> I'm a Roman and I'm a Pharisee. And those two things really saved his skin here, it looks like. Like literally his skin. And so he uses it, right? Take what you have for vanity. I also want to point out there were times when Paul did not use those rights, okay? Just so you know, where he just allowed God to, man, is it part of it? Will you have to suffer? Yes. Are there times where you can be wise? Yes. And guess what? How do I know the difference between the two? That's called a relationship with Jesus and being led by the Spirit. <laughs> and learn what that means. Learn how to enjoy him. Learn how to be with him. Okay, we are pretty much done. I want to end with this though. Okay, there is a battle for the heart and the soul of people. And you guys gotta be aware of it. I know you know it. I, you probably are like, golly, Jordan, here we are again. No, you guys know it, but if, I want you to be stirred up in it. There's a battle for your attention, for you to dilly-dally around with things that don't mean anything. I want my life to be the Lord's, and I speak that in a genuine sense, and you guys consider where you're at. There's a way to just say, Jesus, I want all of you. I want, to know, I want to know you. I want everything, right? There's this way to be stirred up. Like this morning is a chance for us as a church to be stirred up in such ways. When some doofus shares things like that, like, hey, be stirred up. Where is your heart with Jesus? And, and, and here's the beauty of it. You just get to, to spend time saying, I want it all. I want you to have all of me. Will you help me to surrender? Teach me what that means. Show me areas in my life that are jacked up and need your touch and need your grace. I need some help. There's a battle for our attention and an effort to steal away any zeal we might have. Just know this, man. It's real and the enemy is real and there's a real battle and there is real power and there is real strategy and there is real organization and it's all to keep you from knowing him and making him known. And so just be aware of it. We fight and we have weapons that will destroy everything the enemy can do. It's found in Christ. In fact, I want to share this. Two things. Nehemiah 8.10, there's a lot of things in front of it, but just know this. Do not sorrow, for the joy of the Lord is your strength. If any of those things seem overwhelming, enjoy Jesus. Let his joy be your strength. Last week we talked about God restore to me the joy of my salvation. I was rolling to work on Wednesday and I was listening to this incredible worship band called Saving Grace. And there's a song called the king is coming and I'm driving to work 
and I'm like, oh, God, you're so good. And it's just super heavy metal. And I'm worshiping the Lord, and I'm just like overwhelmed with joy that I've been saved. And that when the king does come, I get to rejoice. Those who aren't in Christ will be bowing their knee, and they're going to judgment. But I get to rejoice, you guys. And like I've been saved, and I felt like the Lord answered that prayer of like restoring me the joy of my salvation. I was just like overwhelmed by how good God is and how, what a great salvation I've experienced. You know? And so I was so thankful for that. Let the joy of the Lord be your strength. Enjoy him. Get, spend time with him. Be in the word. You guys know the drill. Turn in your Bibles. And I do say this will be quick. To Colossians chapter 2. Because it, it's just another reference to those principalities and powers. But I want you to know full well what Jesus did to them. It's important that we know that he won. <laughs> he won. So Colossians chapter 2. Verse 13, it says, And you, being dead in your trespasses and the uncircumcision of your heart, or your flesh, sorry, he has made alive together. You who were dead, he's made alive together with him. He's forgiven you all trespasses. Praise the Lord. Having wiped out the handwriting of requirements that was against us, it was contrary to us. He has taken it out of the way and he has nailed it to the cross. Praise the Lord, huh? He did that for you. On the cross. For you, he did that. But notice what he's done. He has disarmed principalities and powers. Those things we were talking about there in Ephesians, he's disarmed them. What does it mean to be disarmed? Any ability I had to cause injury or harm has now been removed. That's what Jesus did. You guys have seen those super cool videos of guys disarming people? Jesus did that. And he did it fast. He made a public spectacle of them triumphing over them in it. That's the end of the story, you guys. Yes, there's a battle. And yes, there's power. It's been disarmed. How does it all work? Man, I don't have time. I don't even know, really. But I just see here in Scripture, there's still a battle. It's, the enemy has been disarmed. We know the end of the story, you guys. We know how it ends. My encouragement for you is to be stirred up and fight. Cause a little ruckus, you know, for the sake of the glory of God. <laughs> be led by the Spirit. Speak up when you should speak up. Don't be a jerk, <laughs> but speak up. And, and for the sake of the gospel, that Jesus would be high and lifted up. Okay, let's pray. And then we'll worship one last song and we'll get out of here. Father, we ask for your guidance now as we hear all these things and we spent time in your word watching Paul be examined and using his civitas and the privileges and the rights that you had given him, taking advantage of it. We appreciate that. It's a lesson we can learn and yet we see, I don't know, just knowing you and being led by your spirit is so important. And would you teach us what that means more and more? To sit with you and to enjoy you and to know you and to experience a nearness and a closeness. God, show us what that looks like as we spend time in your word, as we spend time in prayer and fellowship. Oh my gosh, I would just pray that you would stir us up and there'd be an outpouring of your Holy Spirit here on these people this morning and that we would... We'd be about your business, knowing you and making you known. You're worthy of every single bit of it. We thank you for what a great salvation we get to experience in you. You have set us free. No longer do we have to fear death. Um, knowing that the death now serves you, we get to be in your presence. Praise your name. You are awesome. Until the time you come back for your church, Jesus, help us to go hard for you. We ask that all in Jesus' name. Amen.